Hi, this is Betsy Gardner, senior editor at the Harvard Kennedy School and producer of the Data Smart City Pod. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please find us and subscribe under the new Data Smart City Pod channel. Today, our host, Professor Steve Goldsmith, is interviewing architect Vishon Chakrabarty. Thanks for listening. Thanks again for uh, being with us for another one of our podcasts. Uh, we're with Vishan, who's an architect, author, professor, founder of a practice of architecture and urbanism, worked for the terrific Bloomberg administration in New York City in the years following 9-11, covers uh, a lot of ground on the future cities. So first, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. How about a minute or two about your impressive background, uh, the various areas you've touched academically, public sector and private sector, just so we can understand a little bit about your context. I've had a pretty crazy nonlinear career. I, I like to call it cross-dressing because um, I studied all sorts of things and then finally came to urban planning and then architecture late. And I've kind of toggled for most of my career between architecture and urban planning. And, you know, I've worked in a lot of different sectors. Uh, you know, I was working as an architect and then 9-11 happened and kind of felt the call to public service, went to work for the Bloomberg administration in those years, did some work in academia, did some work in development, and then went back to architecture and then formed my own practice about seven years ago, uh, which is based in New York. And so, you know, I've really been very privileged to see the world of city building and community building from a lot of different angles. And I think it's hopefully made me a better professional and a better kind of steward of my own practice as I try to, you know, generate the next generation of talent and so forth. And, and you know, one of the things that's interesting, Stephen, is when I got very interested in cities in the early 90s, cities weren't a big topic. You know, it was still kind of the vestige of the late 1970s and so forth. And the, you, you might remember the 90s is actually a very suburban era. That's when suburbia actually grew into even new heights and SUVs and minivans came to the fore and so forth. And I think 9-11, Katrina, the Great Recession, a lot of the events that uh, were the entry events into the 21st century changed all that. And cities, now you can't swing a cat without talking about cities. So it's an interesting moment to actually be having these conversations. There's so much to talk about, and we only have a limited time. I mean, we're in this point, obviously, you know, where cities are have more infrastructure funding than almost all of them have ever had before at one time. And they have concurrently changes in so many areas, not just COVID changes, but climate changes, some issues concerning civic spaces and violence, the conversation about inequity. So if you were advising today's mayors or senior officials, how do you think they should incorporate these theories of design as they spend the infrastructure dollars? I mean, how, how would they even think about incorporating this much change in the design of infrastructure? You know, to me, this isn't rocket science. It's about synthesis. And what I mean by that is both East Asia and Europe have been way ahead of us for decades now in terms of thinking about especially mobility infrastructure expenditure and affordable housing and how you think about those things together. So I think part of the problem we have in terms of our governance is these things tend to be very atomized. And so, you know, there's housing investment going over that's flowing maybe from HUD or something like that. And then you've got DOT expenditures and DOE expenditures. So I'm super interested in 
you know, like we've been trying to develop things like affordable, carbon negative, small scale, but urban housing prototypes. But it doesn't matter if you have to drive to get to it, you know, like, so you have to think about it as being planned with an urban fabric, a transit based fabric. And again, none of this is rocket science. People have been talking about all of this for decades. We just don't do it well. You look at Hong Kong and the way the uh, metro system and housing development works together. There's numerous European examples. And I just don't think we've been doing this well. So in New York City, for example, my firm did a master plan for the city of New York for Sunnyside Yard, which is out in Queens, 184 acres, 12 transit lines, commuter rail. You know, that's the kind of place where uh, it's a big uh, investment lift because you've got to create the land. It's a rail yard. But the reward for creating, you know, dense, affordable housing, parks, schools, social infrastructure that's transit based in the heart of downtown Queens, thinking about that together is, I think, where we're failing, where we see these things as widgets. So we imply, you know, we put a light rail system where there aren't enough people. We put housing when there's not enough transit access. And, you know, then people say, well, that's a waste of money. That's, that's another example of government wasting my money because we're not looking at these things holistically. How do you accommodate, you can call it resilience, let's just call it dynamic change for a second, right? So you're going to build something today that in its use it could change, right? The nature of the sidewalk could change, the number of pedestrians could change, the bike lanes could change, fill in the blank, right? Or one could be anticipating that some piece of construction might be underwater, actually. Is it through the use of sensors? Is it through more community participation? How, how are you incorporating future planning at a time where so much is unknown? Yeah, it's a great question. And this is, you know, when I worked in the Bloomberg administration and, you know, my boss at the time was Dan Doctoroff and often would get like, have to be at City Hall until, you know, eight or nine and on a Friday night and I'd call my wife and I'd say, sorry, I'm going to be late for dinner. Sorry about the guests. And she'd, she'd text me back and she'd say, what is there an urban planning emergency? Is something going to happen in 40 years instead of 30? Um, and, you know, the, it is a huge problem, this problem that you're raising. I mean, you think about EISs and how long it takes to be agile in the space that we're working in. And I think this is where communities play a huge role because no one knows their community as well as the people who live and work there and they have their ears to the ground. And listening to them and understanding the changes that are happening there, I think that's better than a sensor, because I think that is a human being as a sensor. I think it's really listening to how people perceive and understand the changes that are happening in their community. And I think this is going to become even more critical with climate change. Like, so for instance, we're just starting this big project in Australia in the Sydney waterfront. And First Nations, what we used to call Aboriginal culture, but now is referred to as First Nations, plays a huge role in this project because the First Nations traditions of how you think about responsiveness to water actually are like much better than a lot of our 20th century hard, you know, concrete infrastructure uh, interventions that we think are the best ways to deal with water. So I, I, I think that's one of the best things to do is just really try to listen to people. Technology can be key to that. But I just think you always need that human lens as the intervention between technology and whatever kind of conclusion you reach. Have you seen anything that you think works particularly well in terms of community engagement in design? You know, when I was in New York City, the planning didn't report to me, but a number of the other agencies that did, it felt to me 
that the professionals would come up with a plan and then test it on the community as contrasted to come up with a plan with the community and then make it more transparent. I mean, I think there's actually two parts to your question as I, as I see it. No, you know, because the pandemic forced us to work in this different mode. And right now, my office in the United States, like we're working in Detroit and Indianapolis, and we just did this master planning study for Niagara, which is, you know, downtown Niagara is a fascinating place. All of the community engagement, stakeholder engagement happened via Zoom. And we found two things that were really fascinating. One is you got a very different cross-cut of the demographics of the community because there's only a certain group of people who can like basically afford the time to go out to a community board meeting. If you're a single mom, you know, it's pretty hard to go to a community board meeting. But if you get your kid to sleep, maybe you can sneak on a Zoom call for a half an hour or 45 minutes. And that makes a huge difference. And, you know, there's a lot of data around this that the people who can show up at community board meetings are often wealthy and white. And so I think our, our ability to reach much more diverse audiences through digital interaction is great. That's one thing. The other thing that we just found is that on the Zoom function, there's a polling function. So you can anonymously ask questions on Zoom and we would get great real-time feedback. That's a format that doesn't reward the person who's the extrovert, right? Like the person who doesn't necessarily feel comfortable speaking up in a crowd but is perfectly happy to take an anonymous poll. And, you know, and again, there's gender data around this, that men are more likely to speak up in meetings than women and so forth. And so I, I actually think the pandemic taught us a lot about how to do these things differently and potentially better. The other piece of what you said is, I think, one of the most fascinating quandaries of our time in terms of working in this time, which is do people with expertise come up with an idea, a framework plan and present it to a community, or is it supposed to really come out of the community? And I don't think this is a black and white issue. Um, I think community members often have day jobs and they don't have times to come up with a plan. They often don't have the expertise. You know, in New York City, you may recall there's uh, the ability through something uh, called the 197A plan for communities to do their own planning. Uh, I've been trying to urge Community Board 5 in Manhattan to do this around Penn Station because I think the state's plan is pretty awful. And they just don't have the resources. And even in the statute, there's the ability for the community board to get a little bit of money to hire some experts to do some things. So I, I do think there is still a role for expertise. There's a role for us. But I think it's how the work we do is presented and framed, as opposed to it being a fait accompli. How do we present framework ideas, options, present the ramifications of options? And you know, I do think that there's a role for people who train in these things to be able to present the communities with ideas. I don't think it has to all just come from community members who tend to have very busy lives of their own. Again, I it's a gray area in here, and I don't think I have the precisely right answer, but I, I do think that expertise is still important. I've got one final question for you, but I have to, even though I'm interviewing, I have to tell you a story. So I got elected mayor of Indianapolis many, many years ago, and I went immediately out in the first couple of weeks to cut a ribbon on a new park. Even though my predecessor had done the entire park, you know, I still went out to cut the ribbon. And instead of getting adulation from the public, they were really upset because the basketball court 
was on the side of the park where seniors lived in apartments and should have been on the other side of the park where the noise wouldn't have. So I raised some philanthropy money to redesign a, a large number of our parks. We held my first community meeting. I said, "We're gonna we're gonna rebuild your park. What do you want over there, and how do you want, how you want it located?" And I, this guy stood up and he said, "You have the park planners. We're not park planners. Tell us what our options there are, and then we'll ask them." Right. So, just kind of listening to your presentation, it reminded me of that story. Yeah, and that is the quandary. How about just in closing comment, you could spend weeks talking about equity, climate. We've been looking a little bit at design of neighborhoods on outcomes for young adults who live in those. Um, If you looked at the most vulnerable neighborhoods, right, the ones that don't receive a lot of investment but might now, how would we think about designing for healthy goals? Not Maybe not necessarily around climate per se, but how about just terms of public health and exercise and green spaces? What are the components that you think every design should pay attention to for neighborhoods that we're trying to revitalize? Well, I mean, I think there's certain basics that we all need. I mean, I'm a big believer in public space, and I think public space is the glue that holds us together. I think we learned that during the pandemic, but I think even more important way in this way that we're seeing our democracy being undermined, that, you know, to me, public space is the counterpoint to social media in our world. Right. If social media is this thing that is making us more fragmented in our bubbles, public space is the thing that forces us to see this person who looks different than us or practices a different religion than us and says that person isn't that scary. You know, that person actually and I have more in common than we don't. So to me, that health is a very broad topic. And of course, there's all sorts of things you can talk about in terms of walkability and bikeability and all of those things that we planning geeks talk about. Right. But I just. I think there's this core notion of public space as the glue that should hold communities together. And again, I I don't think we're designing public space in great ways in lots of places. I mean, sure, in our big cities where you have lots of big budgets for, you know, fancy landscape architects and big parks. But as I do a lot of work in Rust Belt cities and stuff, I just, you know, we're either planning parks where the people are not, we're not planning enough density around those parks. Things are still too, way too auto-oriented, and that, that damages health in all sorts of ways. And I just, you know, you asked me as a sort of closing, I, I think we're at an extraordinarily opportune moment right now. This infrastructure bill, hopefully this war will resolve, but this war should be pointing to the enormous threat of being reliant on fossil fuel and petrodictators. As we think about climate change, we can think about all of these things together. The equity issue, the climate issue, the health issue, the security issue, the democracy issue. And really, in my mind, all of those can come together through the lens of designing good communities, right? I really think that's an enormous opportunity in a lot of our, especially our mid-sized and smaller cities in this country. Well, we could talk to you for a long time, but uh, we've just had a terrific conversation with Vishan. Thank you so much for your time and your insights today. My pleasure. Nice to be with you. If you like this podcast, please visit us at datasmartcities.org or follow us at datasmartcities on Twitter. And remember to subscribe at the new Data Smart City Pod channel on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. This podcast was produced by me, Betsy Gardner, and hosted by Professor Steve Goldsmith. We're proud to be the central resource for cities interested in the intersection of government, 
data, and innovation. Thanks for listening. <laughs>